I'm Annie, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. episode is going to be a little different, listeners. Very um, different. Yes. After the next two episodes, are going to be very different. That is true. Um, and that is because Samantha and I um, are going to let you sit in on our therapy sessions. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah. Um, it's a... We're going to be a lot closer after this. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm, I'm here to make friends, so you're going to know all my dirt, apparently. Yes. And I'm going to know all your dirt, too. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Turnaround is fair play. Yes. We're hoping it will help destigmatize therapy a little, maybe make it a little less intimidating for people who have thought about doing it and for whatever reason haven't. Um, because being vulnerable is scary. Very scary. Yeah. Uh, when we were first discussing this miniseries on trauma— Samantha and I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to therapy because it can be so helpful in learning ways to cope with trauma. And instead, yes, you're getting two. One for me, one for Samantha. One for me. <laughs> yes. Um, and mine is not super intense, I'll say. Um, and you'll get some, some tools for coping. Uh, disclaimer right at the top, we know that therapy is not accessible for everyone, unfortunately. And, you know, I, I've been there where I wasn't, wasn't able to do therapy mm-hmm. myself. Um, again, you all know I'm a social worker. That's been kind of like my theme. Um, and with that, oftentimes I could not afford it. But we did uh, discuss with, I think we had an episode with the um, Kenya and Michelle about uh, yeah. the fact that a lot of work places, there is a program oftentimes that at least introduces you into therapy, mm-hmm. whether it's a few sessions, like two or three sessions that you can have, and it also counts as your work schedule. I know from my job it offers that because it is that intense, um, and it's an employee program. But sometimes, like mine, I remember my therapist that I was trying to get to um, ended up having full schedule. So yeah. things happen. But, uh, yeah, I understand that it is really sometimes can be difficult. But there are a lot of places out there, and I'm hoping that we can get some more resources that offer sliding scale fees, which is sometimes not even good enough. And I actually try to research if there were any programs that will actually fund um, therapy because I mm-hmm. think that should be a thing. Yeah. And I couldn't find one. So if someone knows about that, please tell me because I would love to see that as a program. Yeah. Um, certainly if you um, have a job or uh, in, in a university or a college or something and maybe – there might be something available that right. you just haven't heard about. That was the case for me when I was in college. Right. And before we get into this, uh, trigger warning for this episode, sexual abuse, assault, eating disorders, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, and mental illness. And if we look at some numbers here, in the United States, over 44 million adults have a mental health condition. Though the number of people seeking help and being covered by insurance has been increasing over the years, over 9 million people still report that their needs go unmet. And there's a shortage of mental health workers to meet that demand. In some areas, four patients to one mental health worker. In the UK in 2017, over 1.4 million people were referred to mental health therapy. And um, there has been some interesting recent research and conversation around the intersection of men, masculinity, and mental health with negative outcomes like mass shootings and sexual assaults and violence. The American Psychological Association, or the APA, has specific guidelines for treating women and girls, gender nonconforming and LGBTQIA+, ethnic groups, older folks, but not men and boys. 
And this is concerning also in terms of the rate of male suicide, which is three times that of the rate of women. From the National Institute of Mental Health, men are more likely than women to use almost all types of illicit drugs, and illicit drug use is more likely to result in emergency department visits or overdose deaths for men than women. There's more stigma, I would say, around men seeking treatment for mental health, um, and therefore they seek help less frequently. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole men-up idea. Like yes. if you're a true man, you can handle this, you can internalize this, just deal with it. Yes, that do whole it. Strong. Oh. Yeah. That's what I sound like. Well, yeah, a man, we, we just <laughs> we just uh, did an example of so, the exact thing yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, so that's manliness, right? When we mm, grunt a lot. Yeah, that's all it is. Uh, there's a, uh, even a term for guys having difficulty expressing their emotions. Normative male alexithymia. Oh, that's a big word. Yeah, yeah. Um, and th- yeah, that is the stereotype that right. men don't. And in the stereotype of therapy is you're sitting on a couch and you're crying. Right. And so that is a direct... Uh, By the way, crying is not bad. No. And as you will hear in my session... <laughs> yes, no. It happens. Mm-hmm, it does happen. <laughs> and sometimes it happens when you least expect it, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Um, recently, I was at lunch with some mostly male friends, and I mentioned that I was doing therapy, and everyone either expressed interest in finding a therapist, or they were already in therapy as well. So, Which is great, because I think the more we talk about it, and more we destigmatize and make it a um, common thing, the mm-hmm. better it is for us as individuals who can actually get help, and then able to help others. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I love it. Keep yes. going. <laughs> and there are a lot, a lot, a lot of different types of therapy, group therapy, family therapy, marriage counseling. Evidence backs up the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, along with dialectical behavior therapy and family-based treatment. But despite that, those are not frequently used. One survey found only 69% of therapists used CBT only part of the time or in combination with something else to treat things like depression and anxiety. And just for a personal um, experience, many of the... Uh, different programs that I use to help our children will use CBT, um, but oftentimes cannot use CBT on people who are lower IQ mm. and or like autism because obviously CBT is very much thinking and processing and um, understanding your individual needs. So oftentimes they feel that this is not as effective for those types of um, patients or individuals. So just to put that out there. Mm-hmm. And... Despite being a huge proponent of therapy um, and seeking help when you need it, this is my first serious attempt at therapy. Uh, Samantha uh, pushed me very strongly (laughs) to do it. I would say we just talked about all the things that we want to talk about. You became open with me, and I was like, yes, we're going to do therapy together. Yes. But we're not doing it together in sessions, but at the same time. Oh, man, that would be interesting. That would be super. We, it could be like a couple's therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Except we're not like fighting with each other. We're, we're just like in fighting session the together. Man. We're fighting the man is what together. we're doing. Yes. Right. Um, I have gone to therapy before. I got turned in twice when I was in college for depressive or worrying behavior, which entailed going to a therapist both times. And the first time, the dude essentially told me like, this is just going to stress you out more. I don't think you should go. And I was like, cool. And the second time, um, she, the therapist was like, I am not qualified to help you. You should see somebody else. And the third time, I went of my own accord at my mom's very strong request, but of my own accord. And I was trying to explain 
some of my trauma to her, and I flipped out, flipped out, screaming and crying, and it scared me, and I never went back. Um, But I knew that I could really benefit from therapy, and um, that brings me to one of the things I think that scares people away from therapy apart from stigma, and that's finding the right therapist. And that is so important. And um, just to throw that out there, you and I, when we were discussing the types of therapists, for us, mm-hmm. when I was looking, I was making sure, A, that it was a trauma-focused therapist who knew PTSD, um, who understood uh, triggering, who understood sexual trauma, who understood abuse trauma, because I think it's very, very important. I did look at their education level. I did look at the uh, level of years that they practiced. Mm-hmm. And for me, actually, I wanted a person who was a person of color mm-hmm. um, because I feel like, and you'll hear it a little bit on my end, it's like I need someone that identifies Um, with what I've experienced because I don't, I'm struggling with my own identity as a person of color. Mm -hmm. So it just happened that this woman, Dr. Coleman, who I know you were talking about, met all of those. And it was, it's been, for me, I don't know about you, it's been fantastic. Um, But yeah, it is very, very important that you understand when you're seeking a therapist, you have the lead. You know what you need or you know what you think you need. You need to make sure you have someone who can uh, meet those needs. Yeah. Um, and there are bad ones out there. There are ones that aren't for you. There are ones that aren't trained to handle with what you're dealing with. Um, some areas uh, don't have any options. I'm from a small town. I'm very familiar with that. Um, and one thing for me, on top of all the stuff that you just said, Samantha, I if it involves travel, I'm very unlikely to stick with it. Right. So um, Dr. Coleman, who's the therapist that we found, uh, she does it online. Right. Very convenient for me. Well, I was going to say she is licensed in Georgia, which that's a reminder. Each state has different qualifications and licensure. Um, she's licensed here. I think she's licensed in Vermont. Vermont. I believe she so. also Chicago? I don't know. I think Anyway, but um, it's been nice for me too, actually, because I can sit at home and have my dog in my lap. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's one of the most uh, amazing moments. Yeah, I hug seriously. my pillow pet. <laughs> <laughs> pillow pet? You have a pillow pet? I have a pillow pet. You haven't seen me in my pillow pet? I don't think I have. Oh, his name is Rudy or Ruby, depending. Is it just a pillow or is it in the shape of a pet? It's a bee. It's a bee? Yes. Oh, my goodness. There's so many things I'm, I'm learning about I'm you. I'm bringing my pillow pet oh, yes, next please. time we hang out. Yes, please. Um, another thing to consider when you're getting therapy is your goals. And um, it's good to go over those really early with your potential therapist um, because you don't want to go into multiple sessions if you're not going to get what you want out of it. (laughs) Um, Talking things out is great, but having stress management and coping tools is, I would say, the ideal. Um, And in your first session, this is what should happen. This is probably what is going to happen. It's a conversation around what it is you're dealing with, what you hope to accomplish, and whether or not the therapist you're speaking with is a good fit for helping you reach those goals. I'm, I'm going to throw that out, this out there. There is timing as well, as you talked about, that you went that one time and it did not, it was not time. The yeah. last time I went to therapy was three years ago, and I was so caught up in all of the trauma that was happening in my work mm-hmm. that it was a daily process that it would shut me down. Yeah. Um, and I knew after a year and a half, by the way, my therapist was awesome. She was great. It just wasn't right timing or it wasn't going where I needed to and I needed a break. So even though, like, it's great, you should definitely see therapists. Therapists are great. There is a thing in your own um, body, I think, and in your own mentalities, is this time. Am I ready to deal with these things? Because the first thing they should tell you, the first thing we're going to tell you, it's damn hard. hard. Like, I'm going to curse. It's f***ing hard. 
Yeah. Like there's nothing else to say. It, it's, it hurts. It's painful. It hurts. It resonates. And you start really understanding why you are the way you are. And that shock in itself, yeah. it, can, it can feel like it shatters you. Yes. The good news is you go past it. And the good news is someone is there with you, which mm-hmm. is therapy, which is fantastic. But again, you have to be not necessarily ready, but aware. Yeah. And able to take on that extra. Right, right. So we just want to throw that out there. Just because we're talking about this and just because we want you to be hear it from us, not necessarily for Annie, but for me, this has been years and years and years of therapy. This has been years and years and years of being in my field. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, in the next episode, you'll hear more from me. But it's timing. There is timing to it too. Yes. Um, and one thing I found from the New York Times... Uh, they they had a, an article about um, finding a good therapist for you. And some questions they listed that you should look at is, what do you specialize in? Right. What kind of training did you do with whom? And what manuals do you use? And there is manuals. There are things out there. And I'm sure this is the world of the internet, so I'm sure you could look it up too. But there are specific methods, specific ideas, and specific books. Yes. So oftentimes if people can't uh, do therapy, there are some self-help books and the workbooks that they, you can use as well. Mm-hmm. And one thing before we, we finally get into this, this session um, with me, um, Samantha and I signed a release saying we agreed to release the confidentiality of these sessions. We did all the legal things. We protected our confidentiality while recording and editing. We set boundaries and discussed what we would and wouldn't talk about um, that would be healthy for us. When, when you're thinking in the context of other people hearing. Right, it. right. What, um, we're, what we're wanting people to hear. Exactly. <laughs> and we sent the file for review before we published, again, legally, um, to, our, to our therapist. And unless you are a podcast host doing an episode on therapy, your sessions are completely legally confidential unless you waive that. Right. And the only reason anything would ever be reported is if you are uh, at risk to yourself or someone else. Yes. Or if there's some type of abuse. So, it is very confidential. Even yes. to the point that I think, I'm sure you did too, Dr. Coleman and I sat and she was like, are you sure? And yeah. we talked about it in like three different sessions yes. about what this looks like. How do we make sure we are protected, you are protected, yeah. they, uh, and Dr. Coleman is protected because this is a very serious thing. HIPAA, yeah. we know, is a big part of law and then um, your... Um, anonymity and your rights, essentially, your private rights, and it still does exist. So we agreed fully, and we'll say that on air, to allow this to happen because we think it's important that you hear what it can be, (laughs) not necessarily what it is for you, but it's not as intense sometimes as you think. Yes, so just keep that in mind that we we didn't do this lightly. And this is true, and this is a six-month-long discussion, you yeah. and I, of uh, actually going here and even doing it before we were still like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is happening. <laughs> yeah. And we, we did several sessions, like, uh, before we even got exactly. to this point. So the, I think, um, and you and I talked about this, I thought it was very important that we set up a beginning because it takes a little while to build trust in relationships with yes. people. And your relationship with, with our therapist is important, mm-hmm. and it is a relationship. Yep. So all of that um, aside, we're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, we're going to hop right into the session with clinical psychologist, Dr. Marissa Coleman. Hello. Hi. Hey. Oh, 
how are how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm good. How about you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm aware also of you being in a a, a new space during our time together, mm-hmm. and how it's a space that's associated with work and with other topics and things. And curious mm-hmm. how that's feeling for you now. It is strange. I feel. I almost feel like I'm having a out of body experience. Um, <laughs> it's it's not unlike because the the show that that we're doing this for. I often um, combine things that are very personal with mm-hmm. work. Um, so it's not a feeling that I'm necessarily unused to, but it is something that I've experienced mm-hmm. before when you're like being very personal and very like yourself, but it is, Mm -hmm. it is your job. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an interesting intersection. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of just, you know, uh, overlap of different parts of yourself, but also different worlds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, um, And so we'll just keep that in our minds and in the space as we meet today. Mm -hmm. Um, Per usual, like I usually ask if there's anything that's been on your heart or your mind that you want to prioritize in our time together, um, feel free to let me know. Um, I don't think so. I, I One thing I have been experiencing, and um, I, I believe we touched on this a little bit uh, the last time we talked, is mm-hmm. um, I just feel like now that I've started sharing this with you, with somebody, mm-hmm. that sometimes it just like comes out. Like I'll just be talking to someone and I'll be sharing something that I'm like, why am I talking about this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never anything like too, it's nothing that I feel bad sharing. It's nothing very like uncomfortable. Um, but it's just bizarre because I catch myself like all of a sudden saying something and thinking, why in the world did I just share that with somebody? <laughs> Um, and I don't know if that's, um, just because it's that I've started talking about it for the first time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. Just that your defenses are likely slowly becoming deactivated in ways that, um, they had been very activated, um, in the past. And so those filters of um, like guardedness of needing to protect certain parts of yourself, like they may be more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like with anything, the more that you do something, the more familiar it starts to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if there's a specific example or a time recently where you had that that you could share with me. Yeah. Um... So, on Sunday, I was hanging out with some friends watching Game of Thrones, and I was saying how I have a really bad habit of um, drinking too much on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And it's because I always call my mom on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people were like, well, why do you dread that? And I just without thinking about it, I was like, well... My dad has terminal cancer, and my mom is miserable. <laughs> and, like... That's been going on for years. I've kind of accepted it, but I don't really talk about it that much. And to just have offered it that information without even thinking about it, it really surprised me. Um, and it could have been that I had been drinking wine. 
Um, yeah, I, afterwards, I, I was kind of like, oh, cannot take that back, can I? No, no, you cannot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm curious about the person that you shared that information with. Are they somebody that's close to you in your life? Do you feel, um, do you feel a, like a specific, I don't know, closeness or connectedness with that person? I do. It's, um, he's kind of a newer person in my life. And that's another thing that, uh, I do love my job so much. And I'm fortunate that I work with a lot of people whom I like hanging out with outside of work. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of an odd thing where we know each other, even though he's, he's pretty new just because we have to work together and then we hang out outside of work. Um, and he's also somebody who's just really, like, easygoing. So mm-hmm. he didn't react. Like, he wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. He was just kind of like, oh, yeah. You know, very <laughs> even keel. And I think for me personally, it's easier to share stuff with people who I think, like, I, I'm i pretty sure I know their what their reaction will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we're fairly, we're good friends. Sure. Mm-hmm. How did you feel after you shared that information about your dad and your mom? Embarrassed, mostly. Um, Just because (laughs) I didn't mean to. Um, Mm -hmm. It has just kind of been slipping out a lot. Um, But he was, yeah, he didn't, didn't, nothing he did made me feel embarrassed about it. Um, But I was just kind of like, I felt like I had, lost control of what I would like to to share. Um, And we're still, I mean, I'm hoping that I'm not misinterpreting that we're pretty close friends. But, (laughs) you know, like if if we've only known, it's been less than a year. So um, there are people I've known years and years. I've never told that to. Mm -hmm. You just said something that was interesting to me and I feel like connects back to some of the themes of what we've been talking about in past sessions around the sense of control. And the security that comes from feeling like you're in control um, of yourself and therefore what you share with others, then also keeping your relationship in control Mm -hmm. um, with the other person. Um, Maybe we should talk a little bit more about other times in your life that you have felt out of control. Um. Yeah, there's there's a time in my life in particular which I'm not even sure why I felt so out of control because looking at it from the outside, I think people would have been like, wow, you're really disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a time in my life where um, I was just so overly scheduled. I always had something to do. And um, and then I would get home really late and then I would somehow find something else to do and I, would, I wouldn't sleep. And it just felt like I was trapped in this cycle of, um, of that I had created, like this cage I had created. And mm-hmm. it was stuff of my own. Like I was deciding to do, every, do all of this stuff, but at the same time it felt like I, I almost wasn't. Like it, it was compulsive almost or Mm. like I just had to keep finding something because I didn't want to not be busy 
Um, and it, I, I remember just feeling so all the time like panicked and like I was barely holding on mm-hmm. to this schedule that I had yeah. created for myself. What would happen if you were not busy? That's the thing. I never let it. <laughs> I never let it happen. Mm-hmm. I, I would. Some nights I would even say um, to myself, "You are going home after work, and you mm-hmm. are going to relax and take care of yourself, whatever it is." And I would go home, and like ten minutes later, I would find something like, "Nope, I'm going out." Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was frustrating because it did feel, even though these were purportedly decisions I am making, it did feel like there was some snap thing like, nope, making that decision for me. I was I was saying, you need to go home. And then something else was saying, no, you do not need mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, that is interesting. And I'm also wondering if part of what was at play in that dynamic within yourself was also not wanting to be alone. Mm-hmm about being with other people, but also having control over who you chose, who you were with. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there was a, an aspect of distraction of if you're with other people and you don't have to think about anything else than the conversation you're having with those, mm-hmm. those people. And I think I was just really looking for distraction, something mm-hmm. to, to keep me busy. When you were with other people and you were talking and hanging out, was the topic and conversation mostly on the other person? Yeah, generally. Um, I do, I like, for a long time, I've I've liked to have been known as the person who listens well, which is why this has been really interesting for me. <laughs> um, it's kind of been my thing. I like to be the the person who's the, on the listening end. Um, a lot of the people I hang out with are um, good, though, at at including me in conversation, like recognizing that and being like, "Come on, <laughs> yeah, yeah," kind of drawing you out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's something perhaps about um, being the listener that allows you to hide parts of yourself that you don't want to share. Yeah. Does that? I mean, do, do you think that that fits with your understanding of your of yourself? It feels safer, for sure, um, mm-hmm. and it also. I think it ties back into some of the stuff we've talked about, about having um, low Mm self-esteem and feeling like I don't really have anything to contribute um, Mm -hmm. to the conversation or like the other person is way more interesting than than I could ever be. (laughs) Mm. Um, Things like that. Do you still feel that way? I do, I do, but it, it's one of, another one of those things where I rationally know that that's not true, mm-hmm. but I still feel that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I've done some really interesting stuff. <laughs> and um, I know that I have. Yeah. But uh, yeah, then, then if I talk about that, then I feel like I'm bragging or something and mm-hmm. can't win. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, a lot of self-talk that is likely reinforced by, um, again, staying in control and not sharing too much. Um, I'm curious when you said that you rationally know that people are interested in what you have to say and you've done some interesting things, but it doesn't always feel that way. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, like when you talk about that feeling, is there a certain place even within your body where you get that feeling? I feel that way about so many things. Um, I just, it's almost like I don't, I don't trust myself at all. Um, mm. I actually, I've never really thought about it this way, but um, one of the reasons I um, overschedule everything mm-hmm. is because I don't trust that I will get things done if I don't. Mm-hmm. I just have like a really deep-seated thought that I'm not going to do what I I said I'm going to do or I just I don't trust the lack of trust in in myself and a lot of people um yeah yeah there's a lot of things where I'm like rationally (laughs) I know this must be true but I don't feel that it's true Mm -hmm. um As as far as you can remember, when did that lack of trust in yourself begin? I think, I mean, going back as far as um, the first the first instance of abuse that we've talked about, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember after that hearing people say, like, I I remember a particular instance where my grandmother was like four or five. She told me that, like, um, she really thought I was so beautiful and she loved my hair. Mm -hmm. And I completely panicked and I um, had this, like, doll that she had made for me. I was holding it Mm -hmm. and I was, like, twisting it so much, all of the the beans spilled out on the floor. yeah, I just, even then, was like, I don't trust what people what people are saying, and I didn't, like, trust myself to, to believe it, because I know she's my grandmother, like, yeah. and I really, we had a good relationship, and I loved her, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I didn't, I couldn't trust it. Mm-hmm. You couldn't trust that what she was saying was true, or you couldn't trust that by her saying that or about you being pretty would um, how do I how do I phrase this? Because I think there, there I want to distinguish between two things that I'm hearing. One, not trusting something that somebody's telling you, your grandmother, but then also I wonder if there's an element of believing that by you being pretty means that something bad will happen or that you'll get hurt. Like that that being pretty isn't what keeps you safe. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's both. I um I've said before, I definitely have like a, a knee jerk panic reaction to compliments, especially about anything to do with beauty or my body. Mm-hmm. Um but I do have this it, it's like a undercurrent of just not trusting that that could be true. Like, I, when I look in the mirror, I see like a horrendous. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I know that that, that can be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't trust that at the same time. It's confusing. Yeah. yeah. Which abuse is confusing, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of what we're talking about um, is connected to the grooming that you experienced um, at such a young age and the idea of being complimented about your looks as being a part of the grooming process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes a lot of sense why one that could potentially be, a, well, why it is a trigger for you, um, but also why um, kind of the first seeds of distrust are really interwoven with that compliment. Mm-hmm. You just said something about how um, something I know that it's true, meaning remind me if I'm getting this wrong, um, but you were you, you were saying something and then you stopped yourself and you said, well, I know I know that that's true, whether you're talking about if somebody compliments you or that, oh, you were saying that you look at in the mirror, you look at yourself and you don't always like what you see. Yeah. But that you recognize like there are like, it has to be true. Like if people compliment you, you know, and I'm curious about what, what part of you knows that, that when people compliment you, there are redeemable and there are great and positive things about yourself. Like, how do you know that? I I think there's a part of me that has to believe <laughs> um, that when people that I do have been with me for for years and years and years and mm-hmm. are there is no ulterior motive of mm-hmm. honestly sex um, mm-hmm. or being related to me <laughs> um, yeah. like your mother is not gonna hopefully in most cases isn't gonna tell you that you're ugly but like um, friends and people that I just believe that they wouldn't, they might be kind and be nice with their words, but I think that Mm -hmm. I have to believe that since really for friends that they're being truthful. Mm -hmm. Um, and I and because I I do this this show and I've done Mm -hmm. a lot of research around, you know, self-esteem and body image and I know the facts around it and I'm a very like rational fact-based person which is why I, ha- I think I have this this cognitive dissonance between um, what I know must be true but what I feel they don't mm-hmm. a lot of times they just don't match up yeah Also, want, I want to point out how that disconnect between mind and body is 
a very common symptom um, for survivors of abuse and trauma is this idea of, particularly when it's involving um, sexual body parts, because the feeling itself can be confusing and that sometimes is pleasurable. But then in your mind or even in your heart, you're like, but this isn't right and I don't feel good. And this is, you know, all of the insert, whatever adjective you want, you know. Um, And so that in itself is confusing. Yeah. And so it's easy for that to, that, that interaction to spill over to other areas of life too. Mm-hmm. And so I know for us, one of our tasks is how to integrate that more for you. Yeah. Um, so that one, you can safely rely on your intuition and instincts and, and gut reactions of if somebody does say something that's, um, disingenuous that you can trust your ability to sense that and know that Mm -hmm. and then vice versa when somebody is sincere and authentic with you that you can trust that too Mm -hmm. Um, what I heard you saying was that time and consistency with people in your life like that helps build that sense of trust Mm -hmm. we have a little bit more for you listeners but we're going to pause for one more quick break word from our sponsor. Has there ever been a time when um, when you have gone with a gut instinct, whether it was early on in a relationship and it ended up being Correct, like you, and you were either surprised by that, or like, do you have any experience of that? Um, <laughs> uh, no, not personally, but I, I can see it in other people's relationships, which is the last thing <laughs> anyone wants. But I have a friend in particular where several times I've been like, "This person is no good for you," mm. and I usually don't unless they ask, like. Or I'm very concerned. I'm not right. going to to voice that. Um, so I feel like sometimes I can see it in other people. I think I've often felt it in my mm-hmm. own relationships. But I usually convince myself that I'm being, um, I guess, paranoid or... Uh, it's it's difficult for me because I've never really had a, I don't remember too much a time before I had like traumatic stuff. Mm-hmm. So I I'll, I think a lot of times I'm thinking maybe this is normal mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just being like overly sensitive to it. Um, so I'll I'll definitely stay in relationships long past when I think this is not going to work. Okay. So you start to second guess yourself and doubt your ability to discern and know what's right for you. Mm -hmm. And so what is it that keeps you there? You had mentioned something about how you may like minimize your feelings or brush it off as like, oh, I'm just being too sensitive. But are there other things that keep you in a situation that you don't feel? feel like is great for you? I 
don't want to hurt the other person's feelings a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, I, I'm very bad about um, letting people, I don't want to let anybody down. I don't want to make anyone unhappy, <laughs> unhappy mm-hmm. and I, uh, there is a sense of like well this person is willing to be with you um and they still are (laughs) so maybe you should see if you can make it work because who knows if there's another person like that out there Mm. saying that out loud how does that feel It's sad. I mean, I've I've never. This isn't a surprise to me at all. I I often think that, <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, saying it out loud is uh, it makes me sad. Yeah, because I can I can see the emotion when you talk about it. Looks like a lot of sadness. Yeah. Is that something that you would like to? see shift in your life and your own self-perception? Yeah. Um, I just feel like there's so many uh, threads for me to, like, so many things I need to tackle mm-hmm. before I can even, like, ascertain what I want. I don't even know what I want. Yeah. And I would like to be able to say confidently, I, this relationship isn't good for me, or no relationship is good for me, or mm-hmm. without always wondering, is it because I went through these traumatic things? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just compelling to me to hear um, because it's it's another way that the traumatic experiences you've had continue to have a hold on not just you and how you view yourself, but also like your life, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the near future, you know, essentially. Um, Yeah, which is why I think it's just so uh, brave of you to work on this stuff and to talk about this because for so long, it's kind of been this like dark passenger, for lack of a better word, with you. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. um, something that you carry that you don't share, but like that impacts you and every aspect of your life. Yeah. And it also keeps you from your goal of like authentic connection mm-hmm. and to be seen and known by another person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are so many things that I, I have done for so long that I had not realized that I was doing just mm-hmm. to, to cope and to avoid and to not have to deal with it. 
Right. And we've talked about how that's adaptive, right? Mm -hmm. Until you're in situations that are safe and that don't need um, that hypervigilance, you know, Mm -hmm. to keep you safe. And then it becomes unhelpful and it can keep you from your goals for yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you are at that place where um, you you are safe? I think, uh, yes. Um, Again, it's one of those things where uh, I think I I am safe and I I feel pretty safe most of the time, but then I have days where I I really don't. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, the compliment thing is a great example. Like in any relationship that in theory you're going to like date, uh, someone gives you a compliment. Uh, the amount of like I've got to get out of here right now that I feel mm. um, it makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, and it's it's like panic. I, I remember mm-hmm. somebody was like getting ready to compliment me, and I was like, "Stop, stop, 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 stop." Um, mm. So I, it's a yeah another thing where I, I'm pretty sure that I am safe, but I don't always feel safe. Really great distinction because, again, that gets at like the mind and the body and the disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. You may not feel safe in your body because you're being triggered. Mm -hmm. But your mind and the reality of um, the situation, you may, you likely are safe, you know. Mm -hmm. But there's always that, that risk, especially when you're in a relationship with another person and you're getting to know that person. The what if. and that's the thing about triggers and why they can have a really powerful hold on um, anyone's way of being and of functioning is that there was a time when you were safe at preschool and you did feel safe at preschool until the first abuse instance and then you were no longer safe. You know what I mean? Or the, mm-hmm. the grooming started and you started to get that kind of prickly feeling or the hair in your arms or like that icky feeling in your tummy of like, why is he sitting so close to me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you're triggered by a compliment, it likely brings you back to those feelings when you were a little girl. Mm -hmm. Have we done a writing exercise yet together? Have I asked you to do it? Um, I don't think I have, but I'm thinking it may be helpful um, if you're up for it and interested, <laughs> feel free to say no. Um, but writing a letter to little Annie, to you as a little girl, um, during that first instance of abuse mm-hmm. and what you would like to say to her, or even thinking about what, what you, what she needs. Mm-hmm or what you would have wanted. I think that could be a powerful exercise to kind of get in tune with, like, one, you're not that little girl anymore, mm-hmm. um, but also still, you're still so closely connected. Yeah. Um, that's It's really interesting to me that that's, um, <laughs> that, that suggestion, I do think it would be really powerful because I, I've told you before I have this... Um, 
character that I wrote that I later realized mm-hmm. he was like my trauma personified. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one night I couldn't sleep and I wrote a letter to her apologizing oh. to her for what I had done to her <laughs> in the writing. Oh, wow. um, and it was really moving. And she's a fictional character, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I bet that would be, yeah, pretty powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and and if you do do that and feel like you want to include that or involve that in your therapy, that would be um, great to hear and for you to share. Also, the character, I know we've talked about her a bit. Um, feel free to include her and bring her in too <laughs> anytime. <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. Yeah, I love I love narrative work because I think it's just a really powerful way to do um, post traumatic healing, especially at the beginning um, when the exposure of talking about your own experiences can be almost too much. Mm-hmm. Um, it can feel safer for many to to share and to talk through a character. Yeah. Um, going back to what we were talking about, uh, about you ske- over-scheduling yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, did we chat about what you were afraid of if you weren't as scheduled? Like, like what would happen? Um, I, ha- I have this, if I sit still, too long with myself um i would describe it as like a like itching um i just get really uncomfortable and then i get like this um like gnawing anxiety of you you should be doing something you should be doing something um, and it's, it's something that I also, uh, experience when I try to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I am just afraid of where my thoughts will go if I don't occupy them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I mean, most of the time, even when I can't sleep, it's fine. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not great, but I can't sleep. But there's no, like, flashback happening or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, but sometimes there are. And I think that those times are powerful enough that I will do what I have to, what I think will be my best bet to prevent them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm just really uncomfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I like to have distraction from it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're almost like a different person when you're around other people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did my boyfriend used to say? Like, my greatest skill... Was pretending everything was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I'm around other people, I'm just very like 
happy. I, I am. I'm like happy and I laugh. Well, all my nicknames are based around laughter almost. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then when I'm by myself, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum. And mm-hmm. I've gotten better. I haven't... Um, I've gotten better about being like with myself, by myself. Because mm-hmm. uh, eventually I had to. Like I was crashing hard. Um, that was one of the things where I, I knew that I probably needed to go get therapy. Um, but yeah, I think I am. When I'm out with people, I'm much more like lighter. And that's because of the distraction? I think so. And I think there's also an element of um, having, you know, you have that social persona. um, And my social persona is that she's like, (laughs) like another person. I I am like um, (laughs) very... um, fun and outgoing and I'm always down to hang and I've always got like jokes and puns and um, I'm just fun and I think there's a defense around that too where I have that underlying sense of when people realize what you really are they'll never want to hang out with you but -hmm. if you're super fun Mm -hmm. then they'll always like invite you to stuff they'll want to hang out Mm -hmm. with you Mm -hmm. So it's almost like performing. Mm. That was the sense that I was getting, you know. Um, and a lot of performers talk about this idea of having a persona and then when they are out of the um, spotlight, so to speak, or, or their cameras aren't rolling, right? <laughs> then there's this lull of, you know, who am I if I'm not... Um, engaging with people in ways that are expected of me. You know, there's like an identity that's formed around how other people perceive you. Mm -hmm. How do you think that that tendency within yourself connects to your traumatic experiences? Or if you think that it does at all, actually? I think um, the, the closest way that it does is probably... Uh, my, I mean, mainly my um, desire that to not make people um, uncomfortable or sad, to protect people um, and make them happy, and in doing so, not sharing that with with people, not sharing what happened to me with people that are close to me. Um, like pretending everything is okay so that they don't have to to worry about it or feel bad about it. Mm. Um, so to protect others at the sake of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, when you're trying to cope yourself, you don't want to admit... <laughs> that this has happened to you like there's there's even a, an element of that of like if I can almost pretend I am this person and then mm-hmm. I don't have to 
feel like that vulnerability mm-hmm. and that feel that feeling that oh I am not over it. Uh, there, there's something very alluring about you know what this happened to me, but I'm the life of the party. Yeah. Um. But yeah, eventually <laughs> you have to go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing about denial, it being one of the most primitive defenses, right? Is that um, it can only work for so long. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing about trauma, you know, and whether it's denial, avoidance, or um, dissociation, or all of the above. Uh, it will find a way to come up mm-hmm. and manifest itself. Um, you know, which is why um, trauma-focused work can be so scary because it removes that defense. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, that's the same reason why it's really powerful because um it has the ability to get to the root of the issue so that it can be less poignant and impactful on one's life. Yeah. And just talking about it like you're doing is a really big part of that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah, it's it's been I don't it does feel like I have like there's almost two people that are living inside of me. <laughs> Just so it sounds weird to say, but I do feel like there's the one that most people know. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other one. Yeah. And the other one is hidden because out of, is the other one hidden out of um, fear that the people close to you would not be there for you or would look at you differently if they knew? Yeah, yeah. I have a pretty decent amount of fear that when you make people <laughs> uncomfortable um, or if they see, they hear these things about you and they're thinking, oh, man, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to have to deal with this. Um, and that's that's being really to my friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm fairly confident. I'm almost, you know, it's me. It's I'm the one that is uncomfortable with with being open with that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and even just saying that, um, there's a lot of emotion in that statement I can see. What makes you the most uncomfortable about that, do you think? 
I think um I think it makes it real. It makes mm-hmm. it like I can't that's another thing I can't take back. Uh-huh. And it also I have built myself on on making people happy and on also being strong. Mm-hmm. It feels like admitting I was weak. Mm-hmm. Um and there are certain things that um I think people find funny about me mm-hmm. that I think if they knew this source was from traumatic experience, mm-hmm. they would feel guilty and also like, so for example, I'm very easily startled. Um, mm. It's kind of like a joke oh. and it doesn't upset me. Like I'm not, I'm not saying this, to, <laughs> but I'm worried that yeah. I Every time someone startled me who knew that after the fact, right? Like, there would be this moment of like, oh, yeah, that thing happened to you. Right. Right. So, so part of what I hear you saying is that you feel like if people knew, then they would start to think of you as either a victim or as they think about the abuse when thinking about you. Is that, is that part of what I hear you saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And that you want to be known for so many other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> I can, I can understand that fear 100%. I think that's also tied into what you said about how you feel like people would think of you as weak, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that, you know, we've talked a bit about like unhelpful um, like cognitions and kind of unhelpful core beliefs around the trauma that have been internalized that will do some work on externalizing and then restoring through narrative work. But um, this idea that trauma makes somebody weak mm-hmm. is one that I, you know, I know um, is a recurring theme in our work together and that I hear you talk about in regards to yourself versus which is the same as like the victim versus survivor mm-hmm. right yeah um when in fact it was actually a resilience in your strength that allowed you to continue to persevere and um thrive yeah and there's an element too of um a survivor taking on the persona or the identity of weakness that absolves the offender of all of the responsibility. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just throwing that out there. Not much that we have to do with that now, but um, bookmarking some things to make sure that we address and come back to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I I told you before, on days where I, like, can feel compassion mm-hmm. um, for my younger self. Because yeah. she does feel like a younger sister. She doesn't, she doesn't feel like me at all. But mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like in awe of what mm-hmm. she, she dealt with. Yeah. My hope for you is that you can sit in that um, sense of awe and let that permeate you more. 
Um, because when I sit with you and when I talk with you and see you, that's what I see. And I'm sure that the people in your life um, that love you and that are close with you see the same thing. <laughs> so why don't this week, we're going to have to pause in a moment, but why don't this week you um, try to approach some of the self-compassion with intentionality? And um, even if it's just a moment every day, uh, thinking through and reflecting something that um, you are in awe of about yourself. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask you about that next session. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Homework. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that. That's what therapy can look like. <laughs> Um, I never really know how these are going to go. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I knew what I wouldn't talk about. Right. Um, but I, I believe me, I had, that is the last thing I thought I was going right. to And, and just so you know, I was not present for this. Um, mm-hmm. our producer, Andrew, who was fantastic, was not present for this because mm-hmm. we wanted you to be yeah. in your safe, in your place and make it normal as possible with headphones and yeah, mic. and a mic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, I will say for me, it felt normal. It did, um, yeah. But yeah, that was something, like, even though we're here talking about it, obviously, um, it was done in a private manner and there are things we may have taken out or, or put up, put yeah. together, or whatever, not necessarily rearranged, but put together uh, because we felt it was important. So yeah. again, we were still protecting our own um, selves and our own emotions and our own mentality, mental health. Yes. So just again. Yeah. And um, one thing I did want to mention that I have really appreciated about doing these sessions with Dr. Coleman is she gives me a lot of tools, like coping tools, um, like safe place, um, measuring distress units. Um, we'll probably come back and talk about those in future episodes. Uh, and one thing I found interesting after listening back to this is I really played it safe. I wanted to play it safe. Um, I didn't want to get into details of my abuse. Um, but at the same time, there was something she asked me where I didn't even think about the abuse, and I should have. Like, um, there's this question around control. And if I imagine my brain is Google, and she's giving me a search term, it's like those sections of my life are blocked results. They didn't even appear mm. until later, and I was thinking about it like, oh, so yeah. You had one of those aha moments. hmm my denial game is very strong. <laughs> um, and not that the answer I gave wasn't true. It's very true. But it's just not the obvious choice at all. Um, but yeah, I hope uh, that <laughs> if you've ever uh, thought you were the only one that had these very severe insecurities and low self-esteem, I present proof that you are not. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and I had already talked about the fact that we both had a session about being feeling like we had the um, imposter syndrome. Yes. And specifically about this podcast, I think. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, Yep. (laughs) But, um, yeah, we hope that this has made it less scary, maybe helped to stigmatize it a little for you listeners, and you will be hearing uh, Samantha's in the next episode. But in the meantime, um, thank you so much for joining us, Samantha. Yeah, thank always. you guys for letting me be a part of this. Yeah, and thanks to Dr. Coleman who Dr. agreed Coleman, to do this yes. after after months of uh, careful thought. So if you're in Georgia or in Vermont and you can't afford therapy, 
She is fantastic. Um, thus far, she has called me out on a lot of things. Which is... <laughs> in a good way. Yes, in a good way. Um, thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Andrew, we love you. We do. And thanks to you for listening. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Give us the resources. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 